So we've been speaking the last few weeks about power encounters, truth encounters, love encounters. And power encounters are when a change happens just completely unexplainably, not by natural or scientific means. You just, you've had a power encounter. I remember one time I was at a church gathering like this and someone had a word of knowledge, very specific. And they said, if that's you, you need to raise your hand and receive from God. And I was like, that's me. And I raised my hand and I just felt the power of God just zing me. But I, I went home that day and I'm like, something happened, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't realize till two weeks later because I had a real issue with talking about finances and I was always fearful about not having enough money and all this stuff. Two weeks later, Aaron and I were like doing bills or something like that. And I was like, I can talk about this with no problem. And then somebody else received a huge inheritance. And if they had received an inheritance in the past, I would have been like, well, that's not fair. That stuff never happens to me. (laughs) And instead, when I heard the news, I was like, that is so incredible. That makes me so happy for this person. And then another thing happened. And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't have any problem anymore talking about money. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not worried anymore. And I realized I put two and two together. And I was like, that day when God touched me, I got free miraculously with this power encounter with Jesus. It was amazing. So that's an example of a power encounter. Truth encounter. I talked a lot about truth encounters last week. But essentially, it's when lies we've believed believed are replaced with truth and we are changed. Today, I want to speak about love encounters. And that's when you experience the love of God so deeply that it changes you dramatically. Each one of these encounters includes a change. We are changed. We change. We pray that we're a community where we get to experience God's power, truth, and love, and where we're a community that is deeply and profoundly changed when we encounter Jesus. This week, I was listening to something, and somebody mentioned the story of Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you saw that movie. It was, I think it was 2016, 2017, that movie came out. But I'm going to tell that story. It's based on a true story. Um, I think I was thinking of the military this week because Kelly, Joe, and Juanita actually got space to come from drill to the baby dedication, and then they left But um, to get back to drill. They're in the army, but it's the true story of an army medic named Desmond Doss. And Desmond grew up in a home um, that was really abusive and violent and traumatic at different points in time, but he had parents that loved him. Even with all of that, they loved him. But at one point, he, he almost um, kills his brother in a roughhousing accident. At another point, he has a gun and he almost shoots his alcoholic father in a confrontation. And, and God spares him from shooting his father. But his mother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and she nurtured a faith and belief in God in him that was really profound. His dad was a World War I veteran which could lead to some of the troubles they had in their home. But World War II begins and Doss enlists in the army as a combat veteran or a combat medic. But because of his history with violence, combined with his faith and his faith tradition, he refuses to train on the Sabbath and he 
refuses to learn how to handle, care, or use a weapon. His fellow soldiers did not like him. I mean, you're out on the front lines. You need someone who can protect you. But he said, I'm going to come, I'm going to be a medic, and I'm going to care for you, but I'm not going to carry a weapon. Well, this led to a whole new round of abuse. And if you watch the movie, I was just like, can this guy get a break? <laughs> he leaves this family of abuse and violence, and he comes in to the army, and it's just all over again. His fellow soldiers don't like him. They don't trust him. They abuse him. They bully him. They torment him. He ends up court-martialed. Long story short, he gets out of jail or whatever it is in the military, and ultimately he finds himself with his unit in the Battle of Okinawa in Japan. He's up on the top of a cliff of this ridge, and they're trying to advance into um, Japan, and the Japanese just topple them and come back at them, and it is not good. The um, Allied troops are just being annihilated. They begin to evacuate, and as they're evacuating, there is a giant bluff, a giant cliff. The only way to evacuate is to be belayed down to the bottom. This, if you haven't seen the movie by now, this is all spoiler alert. It's, you're going to know the movie. It's a true story. It's worth it. It's an old movie, so that's your fault. <laughs> so they're stuck on this ridge, and everyone's evacuating the best they can, belaying off this ridge, and Doss keeps going back, back into the thick of it and retrieving people and bringing them to the edge of the cliff one by one. And it is heart-wrenching and it is something else to behold as he goes back in. Um, he's just, he's, he's kindly and with so much perseverance rescuing people. He belays 75 individuals off that edge down to the bottom. It's the same men who mocked him and tormented him, rejected him, said, we don't want anything to do with you. He rescues their lives. He saved 75 men. He becomes the first conscientious objector to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's a story of breaking cycles of violence, of reconciliation with fellow soldiers, of forgiveness, of perseverance, of overcoming horrendous odds by his laying down his life for others. It's a story of love. It's like the salvation story with Jesus. Even his hands are completely, he's belaying people off his shoulders because he's just so he doesn't have any more strength to get these people to the bottom of that bluff. Since Easter, we've been looking at the happenings of Jesus' last week before his crucifixion, his resurrection and the power encounters and truth encounters that happened in the process. Ultimately, Jesus' story is like Doss's, or Doss's is like Jesus, right? I'll say it again, Jesus' story of going to the cross is like breaking that cycle of violence. Of, it's a story of reconciliation with his disciples and others. Think about the religious leaders, Nicodemus, who's there burying Jesus. He, representing religious leaders, there's a soldier who's like, behold, this is a son of God. Jesus, at the cross, 
There's forgiveness, there's perseverance, there's overcoming darkness because Jesus laid down his life for others. And again, it's a story of incredible love. When we know Jesus and we recognize his sacrifice and redemption, like the soldiers rescued from Hacksaw Ridge, we're profoundly and deeply and forever changed by that love. I want to tell four different moments, four pictures, four little images, four demonstrations of God's love for you through the cross and resurrection story. Now, there are many more. We've been talking about this for weeks, right? There are many more stories, but I've just picked four. Moments where people were deeply and profoundly changed by his love. The first one is John 13. It says in John 13 that it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that phrase just stuck out to me. He loved the disciples as his own and he loved them all the way to the end till each one gets off that cliff. This is the scene. This is the last supper. This is Jesus's last meal with his people, with his disciples, his friends. And they're sitting there and it says that the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew what was before him, and yet he takes time to humble himself, to to get on the floor, and to wash and touch his disciples' feet, and to minister intimately to the ones he loves. Judas was in that mix. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew what was coming, and he washed Judas's feet. Peter, Peter was there. And Peter knows, and, and Jesus and Peter know Well, Peter doesn't know it. Peter says, I'll never reject you, Jesus. I'm always going to be with you. I'm going to be with you to the end. But Jesus knows that Peter ultimately is going to deny him three times. During the cross and resurrection, during Jesus's journey to the cross, there's this moment where um, people are like coming to Peter and saying, aren't you with that guy, Jesus? And Peter says, oh, no, I'm not. And they're like, we're pretty sure you have the same accent as him. We've seen you around with Jesus. Aren't you with him? And and Peter says, no, I don't know him. And then one more time, someone asks him, and Peter says, I don't know that man. And Peter runs off crying. He knows I've denied Jesus. And yet Jesus knew this was going to happen, and he washes Peter's feet. Of the 12 disciples, we only know that one stays with Jesus in the journey through the cross, and that's John. We only know that for sure. There could have been another, but we know John was there, and it says the rest ran. Jesus washes all of their feet. He loves them to the end. 2 Peter 3, 9 
says that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient with us. Until his last breath, Jesus loved laying down his life. No matter who we are, we might be a Judas, we might be a Peter, we might be a Nathaniel or one of the other disciples, but we have access to a God who loves us as his own and he loves us to the end. You might think God is at the end of his rope with you, but he's not. It's not his nature. He loves us to the end. The second love. Jesus loves us by forgiving us before we ask for it or even know we need it. Jesus, on the road to the cross, when he's taken up to to Golgotha, the place of the skull, he isn't just brutally killed, but he's also brutally mocked. I read one commentator that said, if you read the gospel narrative, there's more about the mockery and the rejection there than there is actually about the physical violence. I don't know if that's true. I didn't have time to research it, but it's a really interesting idea that the mockery and the loneliness and the ridicule could have been greater than the actual physical pain. It says, Jesus was hung between two criminals who were led out with him to be executed. And Jesus was crucified there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on the left. He died with bad people. (laughs) He was recognized with the criminals. And while he's hanging there in Luke 23, 32 through 34, this is what he says. He says, Jesus, or he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. (laughs) We talked about Thomas last week, who's like, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know what we are doing. (laughs) Jesus loves us. He forgives us even when they don't know what they're doing to him. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God forgives us before we even know we need it. Several months ago, Jane came home from school one day, and she's like, Mom, you have to watch this movie with me. We have to get this movie. And it's a really old film, and it's about Ruby Bridges. Raise your hand if you know who Ruby Bridges is. See, that's crazy. I didn't know who she was. I I knew the name, but I didn't know who she was, and most of us don't know her name. But Jane came home and she said, we read this book and we have to watch this film. So it's a story of the six-year-old black girl who went to school in 1960, and she was the first one to go to a white school in New Orleans. So it's a desegregation story. And she's the one who you see the images of the marshals walking, escorting her into school. And every day the marshals would escort her through a crowd of jeering, mocking, taunting people, throwing things at her. And for over a year, this happened. She was the only girl in her classroom because all the other parents pulled her, their children, from the classroom. So it reminds me of Jesus' story, right? There's jeering, there's obscenities, there's threats, there's isolation in her journey. 
And there's a key scene in this old film, and it's in the books and it's true, where she's marching up. She'd been trained by the marshals not to look at the crowd and not to listen to them, to just run up the stairs. But there's one day this little six-year-old marches to the top of the stairs and she turns around and she's looking at the crowds and she's talking and she's saying something. And, um, and then she turns around and heads right back in. And her teacher is watching from the upstairs window. And when she gets up there, she says, Ruby, what were you trying to say to the crowds? And she said, oh, I wasn't talking to them. She said, you weren't? She said, oh, no, I was praying for them. She said, every day on my way to school, I pray, but I forgot today. (laughs) So I stopped and I prayed on the steps. And this was her prayer. Dear God, I pray that I will be strong and not afraid. I pray for my enemies that you forgive them. Because Jesus prayed that on the cross. Amen. I have to admit, (laughs) when I was watching this movie, I was not watching it from the little kid's perspective like Jane was. (laughs) I was watching it from the parent's perspective. And they really show a lot about the parent's dilemmas. (laughs) And if I were her parents, I would not be praying like that. I'd probably be praying Psalm 137.9. This is a terrible psalm, but it's in the Bible, folks. And it says, I'll be happy, Babylon, when someone takes your babies and bashes their heads into rocks. (laughs) I'm sure as Ruby's marching up those steps, her parents are, her mom was a household worker, and her dad lost his job and would get various jobs from other people because even his own community were like, you can't work for us. This is too much controversy. This is too hard. And so I'd be like furious. (laughs) Deal with your enemies, God. Deal with these enemies. And yet this little girl was so impacted by Jesus' story on the cross that she, oh, all her kids are coming for their shoes because they get to go outside and play. That's awesome. This little girl was so impacted by Jesus' forgiveness on the cross that she somehow received that and was able to give it away. There was a child psychiatrist who was watching all of this, and he became friends with the Bridges family, and he tried to help their family process what they were going through. And he said, he's like, I don't know how you guys are doing this. I don't know how you're maintaining health and faith and perseverance in this. And um, little Ruby Bridges said, prayer is my protection. Prayer is my protection. Like Desmond Doss, little Ruby Bridges has a story that extends love to people when they're in their very worst and totally undeserving of forgiveness. 1 John 4.10 says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Jesus loves me, not because I'm good at loving God or loving you. On the contrary, he loves us because he's a good and loving God. And while we're still sinners, Christ dies for us. 
Let that sink in this week. Let that sink in. The third love, demonstration of love. It's a rescue. Have you ever been rescued from something scary? Just this week, I was driving, pulling into two left-hand turning lanes. The traffic over here was stopped, and someone, I guess, from a business all the way over here, this was on Fort Union, that's a lot of traffic, comes and cuts through all this traffic right in front of me. I say my armpits gleek when that happens. (laughs) What I mean by that is, like, you just start sweating immediately, like, You're like, thank you, Jesus. You know that feeling of being rescued. I've had friends who've been in car accidents. Their cars are totaled and they're okay. And you're just like, ah, I've been rescued. Or maybe you've been rescued from something that isn't so obvious. Have you ever been in a bad relationship? And all of a sudden you realize, whew, I got to get out of this. (laughs) Right? Or you're with a bad group of friends and you become aware that this is not good. I need, I need to figure out how to get out of here. Or maybe an addiction. You, you find yourself addicted to something. You think you have power over a substance or a behavior. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that thing has power over me. Some, something's up here. We need rescuing. When we're in darkness, when we have patterns of sin like addiction or anger or fear or bad relationship patterns, or when we find ourselves stuck in religious performance and trying to be perfect, and we don't even realize it, but then all of a sudden we see, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in some darkness here, and I need to get out of it. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God rescued us on the cross. Colossians 2, 3 through 15 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, which stood against us and condemned them. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. And then he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, Jesus' act of love rescues us. The fourth demonstration of love that I want to talk about is Jesus' love places us in the care of a family. There's a really poignant scene when Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus' mother Mary is watching her son die. Jesus' closest friend, John, is there. It's the same, it's right around when Jesus, oh, sorry, lost my train of thought. So Jesus is, or Mary is watching Jesus. His closest friend and disciple, John, is there. And Jesus looks down from the cross and he sees his mom and he cares about her. He thinks about her future. And he says, and it's recorded in John 19, 26 through 27, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, his, his, the disciple John, he says, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus in that moment, he's taking care of all of the sin of humanity. And he's also caring for Mary. 
Last week, we read the passage in John 14 where Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Jesus cared and cares today about our future. He cares about us being part of a family. Not only did Jesus leave us with the Holy Spirit, just like he left Mary with John, Jesus leaves us with one another. (laughs) We might look at each other and say, oh, I don't want to be left with you. (laughs) You don't want to be left with me. (laughs) But that's what Jesus did. He gave us to one another. After the resurrection, when Jesus sees Peter again, Peter who rejected him and denied him and pretended he didn't know Jesus, after that, Jesus sees Peter, and three times he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. And it happens three times. Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. Then he says, feed my sheep. And then a third time, just like Peter rejected him three times, Jesus gives Peter a chance to say, I love you, Jesus, three times, face to face. So in that moment, Jesus is restoring Peter individually, but he's also entrusting his disciples with the care of God's people in the flock. Jesus has a plan for us. It might not be our favorite plan, but it's Jesus's plan. He left his mother with John, he leaves his flock with Peter, and he entrusts us to one another. Eugene Peterson, who did a paraphrase of the, of the Bible in everyday English, he says this in his introduction to the book of James. He says, when Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders on observing this conclude that there is nothing to the religion business except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. (laughs) Insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones inside. Let's see, can we get the next slide? Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones inside. But their illnesses are either undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather places where human behavior, misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. That's church. <laughs> this is God's good plan and big plan for us. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that excite you? (laughs) My niece, um, a few years ago, I keep telling Lydia stories. Poor thing without telling her ahead of time. Anyways, um, her, her family lived overseas doing missions work. And they would come every few summers and stay with us for a couple of weeks. And I think you were 16, 17, somewhere around there. Anyways, they're with us like four or five weeks or so, approximately in and out. And I started noticing this pattern that whenever Aaron and I would get into a disagreement or a discussion or a little heated debate, all of a sudden Lydia was there. <laughs> 
And she'd be like getting a glass of water from the fridge or writing a note or just I'm looking at a book or something. And finally I was like, Lydia, uh, what's up? How come every time Erin and I are getting in a little discussion, you're around? And she said, I just really like watching you fight. <laughs> and I was like, um, I was like, okay. And I thought about it and I was like, that's not such a bad thing. You can stay here. You can watch this. That's what community, that's what church is. We learn how to fight clean and we learn what it looks like when we fight bad. <laughs> and we're a community and we bring it out in the open and we get it out and we wrestle through it. Jesus left us. Jesus left us this way. Hold on here. We're a hodgepodge group of messy people, aren't we? I was on the internet the other day and I got this advertisement for a t-shirt. I was a little worried. It says, I was worried that they sent me this advertisement. What about my browsing history makes you think I would want to buy this t-shirt? It says 2019, avoid negative people. 2020, avoid positive people. 2021, avoid people. We don't get to do that. That's not Jesus's plan. Jesus's plan is to introduce you to a love that will profoundly change you within a body of believers. I had a friend um, 20 years ago. Um, we spent two years in Logan. I was in a, a school program up there at, the at Utah State University. And there was a group of campus, um, a, a small kind of group for Christians on campus. It was called Focus. So it was a campus group for Christian kids. And we got to know a bunch of kids in this group. We always felt a little out of place because we were older and married. <laughs> but we still wanted to be with these young believers. And most of them were single at the time or dating or whatever. And there was a girl in this group, her name was Sarah Pegram, and she recently died. She died of breast cancer. And she was from England, and um, we met her during this time. She was actually dating a guy in this group. And she was just something else. She was just one of those people who was always connecting with others, always caring for others. And that we had a Zoom memorial, and there were people all over the U.S. Um, some of these kids ended up as missionaries in China. It was just really cool to reconnect um, with these old friends and celebrate her impact on our lives. And I, I started recording the stories, because I have my stories, but some of these other stories, I was like, oh my goodness, she was incredible. But one of the stories I want to share, this is just a simple story. And her husband joined us. And he said, I want to, he said, I want to tell you about a story when I was dating, when we were dating in this campus ministry. And he said, um, we were dating and she was really opposed to marrying an American. And so he knew he was after her, but she was going more slowly and carefully. And, um, he said, we went to one of our worship gatherings as a group, and she looked at me and she said, listen, Mike, and this is, she said, your relationship is important to me. 
And what we have here is significant to me and you matter to me. She said, but when we're at church and when we're worshiping, be prepared that I'm not going to talk to you. (laughs) And I was like, oh, she didn't want people to know was my first reaction, but that's not the reason. She said, when I am in a worship gathering, I'm looking for who's here who's lonely. I'm looking for who needs encouragement. I'm looking for the one who isn't connected. That's who I am when we come together to worship. So if we're going to keep dating, you have to be okay with this. And he just said, in that moment, everything shifted. He's like, when you're dating, you're thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Are we going to be the right fit? And ooh, what are we going to do together? And he's like, I realized that if we were going to build a life together, it was going to be way bigger than me or her. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he demonstrated a love for all humanity and at the same time, the love for his mother. After the resurrection, he is demonstrating love for Peter by restoring him. And at the same time, he's entrusting his disciples with the the big flock and telling them to go add more to the flock. I just pray today that you will see that Jesus loves you individually. He wants to rescue you. He wants to forgive you and forgive your enemies at the same time. But he also, you can't avoid people. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than us. It's about a messy, complicated, cantankerous, and still beautiful community of believers. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. Jesus' love is thorough. He's going to love you to the end. Jesus' love forgives us even when we don't know we need it. Jesus' love rescues us from the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus' love places us in a family, a messy family of saints and sinners. I'd like to close today with three invitations. I just want to invite you to start listening to Jesus. You don't even have to believe. I guess maybe, I don't know quite how that works. <laughs> Last week we talked about stopping and looking at a bush. <laughs> just stop and just say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we sang that song this morning. We welcome you in this place. Say, Jesus, I'm going to listen for you. And maybe the next invitation is to follow. Remember Thomas last week? We talked about Thomas who didn't believe that Jesus could be resurrected. And yet he hung around with those other disciples off and on for eight days. He hung in there. So the other invitation is for you to follow. Follow Jesus. Follow some of his followers. And the other, the last invitation I would say is to believe. Give give Jesus a chance. Believe in him. See how he could change your life. So I'll finish with prayer. Thank you all for joining me today. Jesus, we love you. 
You are the one our hearts adore. Thank you that while we are still sinners, you forgive us. While we don't know what we're doing, you forgive us. Thank you that we can listen to you, we can follow you, we can believe in you and experience forgiveness and redemption and rescuing and being part of a body of believers. I bless this church family and I pray that we would walk in that same forgiveness and that same end love that loves to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.